the National Archives podcast series, Britain and the EC, presented by Mark Dunton. Thanks to everyone for coming along. So, I'm here to talk to you about unfinished business, Britain and the European community, 1945 to 1975. And by way of uh, introduction, it was actually 50 years ago this year, on the 1st of January, 1958, that the European Economic Community came into being. The initial members were referred to as the six, and they consisted of Belgium, France, Italy, Germany, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Britain was left out in the cold. In this talk, I will explore the reasons for this. My mission, hopefully not Mission Impossible, is to deliver a historical narrative giving you an overview of Britain's changing relationship with the European community, from victory in Europe in 1945 right through to the British referendum on whether to stay in the common market in 1975. And in the course of this, we'll be looking at some key documents and what these reveal. I hope to demonstrate that the public records can be very revealing about the attitudes of the diplomats and politicians who contributed to the unfolding story of the European community. We'll see the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs from the British perspective. Now I've referred there to Britain's changing relationship with the European community and of course it did change but there were also certain recurring themes running through this which I hope to draw out. We will see how the British political class engaged and disengaged with the European project at the same time as they were grappling with the realities of Britain's changing role, responsibilities and position in the post-war world. So let's look now at the origins of European integration. And this actually goes back further than a lot of people realise. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, there was a strong tide of opinion in favour of creating a united Europe in order to prevent another war arising from national tensions. As early as December 1940, Churchill had discussed a future Council of Europe. And during the Second World War, the ideal of European unity gained huge support among the resistance movements of occupied Europe. As Stephen George has written, the resistance fighters believed that they were fighting an ideological war, not a national war. So it was an ideological war against fascism. The resistance fighters saw the main lesson of the war as the need to transcend the nation state in the new Europe that would arise from the ashes of the old. And I thought it would be useful to just spend a moment attempting to define the word federalism because this is a word that crops up a great deal in the European context. And the best sort of definition I can find really is that it's a system of government and for our purposes it can be summed up as a system in which the power to govern is shared between a central governing authority and state governments and those powers are constitutionally defined. In terms 
particularly in the, of the European context, a federalist tends to be shorthand for those who favour economic, monetary and political union in the fullest sense. So a strong central federal government with state governments enjoying far fewer powers. Now, following the end of World War II, several movements began advocating a European federation such as the Union of European Federalists or the European Movement founded in 1948. But let's now begin the historical narrative and here we have crowds celebrating on VE Day, 8th of May 1945 and in May 45, with victory in Europe, British national pride was the highest it had ever been. In Hugo Young's words, the British saw themselves as Europe's rescuer. Of course they acknowledged American assistance, but that's how many people saw, saw things. Although Britain was virtually bankrupted by the war, her industrial output was still strong and exports soon began to recover after the war. Britain still saw itself as a great power and there was little talk of reconsidering her role in the world. Winston Churchill embodied British pride in victory. Despite losing the general election of 1945, he became synonymous with the British bulldog spirit and the legend of the finest hour. And I'd now like to turn to Churchill's contribution to the new Europe. Now, Churchill has been de described as the father of Europe. I found Hugo Young's words actually very instructive about Churchill in Europe. He wrote, Churchill was called the father of Europe and he said much to justify that label. But he was also the father of misunderstandings about Britain's part in this Europe. He encouraged Europe to misunderstand Britain and Britain to misunderstand herself. Why was Churchill referred to as the father of Europe? Well, his Europeanism went back a long way. As early as 1930, in an American magazine article, he put forward the case for constructing a United States of Europe and a single economic market. During the war years, Churchill discussed the concept of a Council of Europe. And after France fell in 1940, Churchill became interested in the short-lived proposal for an Anglo-French Union. Churchill predicted that Russia would become an enemy in the future and he saw a united Europe as a force that would keep Soviet ambitions in check. So in the immediate post-war years, there was gradual nudging progress. In December 1946, some of the most passionate advocates of federalism joined up to form the European Union of Federalists. They wanted to create a federal United States of Europe with its own constitution. But the massive post-war disruption in Europe meant that progress was slow. The first Congress of Europe was convened in May 1948 at The Hague and Churchill was its keynote speaker. Now Churchill told the Congress that a move towards political unity in Europe involves some sacrifice or merger of national sovereignty. But his vision did not include Britain pooling her sovereignty. In the post-war years, Churchill, along with much of the rest of the nation, continued to see Britain as a great world power with responsibilities on a global scale. 
as Stephen George has written, this orientation was summed up by Winston Churchill in the idea of Britain standing at the centre of three overlapping spheres of influence. The Atlantic relationship with the US, the British Empire and the Commonwealth, and Europe. And this doctrine became part of the consensus of post-war Britain. In 1930, Churchill wrote, we have our own dream and our own task. We are with Europe, but not of it. We are linked, but not comprised. And this remained his outlook. Churchill saw Britain's role as a facilitator of integration for the continent of Europe, with an overarching role. But Britain was actually distanced from the European project in reality. But this was not always apparent from his rhetoric at the time, which was cloaked in ambivalence. Churchill's rhetoric was typically grand and soaring and benevolent. For example, from a speech he gave at the final plenary session of the Congress of Europe in 1948, we stand together for the great cause of united Europe, which holds out its hands in brotherhood, in consultation with the great United States of America, whose millions of people are feeling for us, and whose earnest desire is that our labours shall not come to naught. The emphasis on the US in that quotation is telling. But in reality, Churchill had no clear plan for Britain, Britain's involvement in the European project. And after he was returned to power in 1951, his interest in the subject appeared to wane. Now, another important figure, of course, in the uh, post-war years was Ernest Bevin. He was Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in the Labour government of 1945 to 51. He was a strong trade unionist, and apparently he was not at all keen on intellectuals. He was very wary of them, perhaps for good reason. He tended to speak warmly about the European ideal, but in fact he was sceptical about plans for integration. Now here's a quote from Ernest Bevan from a Foreign Office memo that we have from March 1948. He said, It is easy enough to draw up a blueprint for a united Western Europe and to construct neat-looking plans on paper. It is much a slower and harder job to carry out a practical programme which takes into account the realities that face us. Bevin was sceptical about an integrated United States of Europe he preferred the option of building up a strong regional group of Western states. Bevin's overriding concern was the threat posed by the Soviet Union to Western Europe. Now, post-1945, Britain enters a nuclear age. And of course, at this time, there are huge fears and uncertainties. Soviet Russia has occupied much of Eastern Europe. And in Churchill's famous words, an iron curtain has descended across Europe. The need for an American alliance became the top priority for British foreign policy. Now, the Treaty of Brussels was a defence pact signed in 1948 by France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. And this paved the way for the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, NATO, which was formed on the 4th of April, 1949. And this drive for defence security 
was the main thrust of British international policy at this time. By contrast, there was, to say the least, marked caution and reserve towards European federalist projects. However, the developments did continue in Europe, of course, and they started talking about a customs union. In 1947, talks began in Europe, and the whole idea was a customs union in Western Europe, and it was the whole business of reducing trade barriers, so freer trade. Britain obstructed it. The, the main fear seemed to be that we can't weaken our links with the Commonwealth. Now, this worry about the Commonwealth is a recurring theme. The Commonwealth, of course, consists of former British colonies or dependencies of these colonies and former British dominions. And in the post-war period, right up to the 1970s, the British political establishment laid great store by the Commonwealth. It was seen as a progressive collection of nations, uh, as a multiracial force for good. British politicians also saw Commonwealth trade as very important to British interests, despite the fact that the economic expansion taking place on the European continent was increasingly more important in reality. Britain gave preferential trading arrangements to Commonwealth countries, to New Zealand for its dairy products, and to the West Indian sugar producers. This was one of the most difficult areas to settle when it came to negotiating British entry into Europe in the early 1970s. Because around this time, others start to set the agenda. And on the 9th of May, 1950, the French Foreign Minister, Robert Schuman held a press conference which caused a sensation. He proposed that France and Germany would cooperate over the production of coal and steel, that they would share decisions on its production in a coal and steel community. This really did cause shockwaves at the time, obviously because of the past history between France and Germany, the two world wars, but here were these two countries prepared to cooperate and share decisions about the production of the materials that create armaments. So you can see, obviously, it was a major significant step. Now, this scheme was really hatched, not by Schumann so much as Jean Monnet. He was a French civil servant, and he was a very important figure in all the moves to European integration. And from the British perspective, the British government tended to see the coal and steel community as very much a political project. There had to be some sort of supranational body overarching this coal and steel community. And the fear from the British government's point of view was of a European federation developing from that. So Britain said no to joining. But they went ahead anyway on the continent, and on April, in April 1951, the European coal and steel community was created, and it brought together France, West Germany, Italy, and what are known as the Benelux countries, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. So this was, in many ways, the embryo of the economic community. Another development at this time was the European defence community. Now, in the period 1950 to 53, US military resources were very much tied up in the Korean War. 
And the US wanted Western Europe to provide for its own defense. And that particularly applied to the Federal Republic of Germany. And a plan evolved for a European army under European command, which would have a European uniform. And this, uh, took, this plan took the name of the French premier, René Plevon. And now we have our first document example from the National Archives. This is, is an example of a document which is very illuminating about US attitudes to a European army. It's part of a memo from Anthony Eden, Foreign Secretary at the time, to Prime Minister Winston Churchill, dated 6th of December 1951. And it reads, General Eisenhower telephoned to me at lunchtime today to say that when in Rome he had made it plain to me that he did not expect us to play a direct part within the proposed European defence community. At the same time, he did hope that we would do all we could to encourage the others in it to get on with the job. From what some French ministers had said to him lately, they were now arguing that not only were we not in the plan, but that we did not want it. Now, actually, President Eisenhower was really telling the British government very much what it wanted to hear. The theme of Britain not taking a direct part in a European project, but encouraging others on the continent to get on with it if they liked, is very much a familiar and recurring theme. And I like the rather casual way that this memo starts. General Eisenhower telephoned to me at lunchtime today. Now here we've got another document, another extract from a document. To explain the background, by late 1951, Britain's relations with the European Federalists were deteriorating rapidly, and this document extract is proof of that. On the 28th of November 1951, at the Council of Europe at Strasbourg, Home Secretary Sir David Maxwell Fife made a statement about the British position on the European defence community. Now, his phrasing was very mild. He said, I cannot promise you that our eventual association with the European defence community will amount to full and unconditional participation. But this, combined with other comments which made it clear that Britain could not enter a European federation, went down like a lead balloon with European federalists. And just to read this, Sir David Maxwell Fife's speech therefore came as a severe shock to the Federalists in the Assembly. If it had received the attention which it deserved, the Federalists would have realised that it was far from being negative, e.g. the reference to the European Army, which left the door open for the very close form of association envisaged in the communique issued at the end of the Paris talks. Unfortunately, the Home Secretary was followed by Monsieur Paul Renan, who, in a malicious and strongly anti-British speech, virtually accused us of hypocrisy and perfidy. Other representatives spoke on the same lines. As a result, more attention was devoted to the distorted and exaggerated comment on the Home Secretary's speech than to the speech itself. It does very much give you a flavour of the... Uh, the fallings out which were happening. And the European Defence Scheme collapses because November, in November 1951, um, Eden had said no British military formations would be made available. 
But then, in any case, in August 1954, France failed to ratify the Plevon Plan and the EDC collapsed. Eden came up with an alternative scheme. In October 1954, the Western European Union was set up, another one of these regional groupings, with West Germany and Italy added to the Brussels Treaty. And connected with this, Britain makes a pledge to keep an army on permanent standby in Europe, which is obviously a significant development. The story moves on. Period 55 to 57 saw a series of negotiations at, at Messina, which was in Sicily, and this takes place over 55 to 57, and the whole notion of European integration is revived. European leaders talk a great deal again about a customs union. And some of the, some of the delegates there got really very enthusiastic. You know, they were saying, we can create new communities following on from the coal and steel community. We can have communities around transport and nuclear energy. And the whole idea of the common market was born at this time of trade barriers coming down across Europe. But the British government's reaction resist. The, the British official sent to these talks eventually just left the negotiating table. Now, the Treaty of Rome, this was signed on the 25th of March 1957 by the heads of government of France, Belgium, Luxembourg, West Germany, the Netherlands and Italy. And this treaty founded the EEC, the European Economic Community. It established a commission, a council of ministers, a European parliament, and a European court of justice. And it was very much focused on economic cooperation. It envisaged an ever closer union to eliminate the barriers which divide Europe. Britain was left out in the cold. And all the subsequent European treaties, by the way, have built upon or amended the Treaty of Rome. However, a few years later, Britain had a change of heart. Britain applied to join the European community in 1961. Now, what explains this? Well, there's a number of factors. One of them were the repercussions of the Suez Crisis in 1956, which led to a, lot of, a great deal of reassessment of Britain's role in the world as the realisation started to dawn that we were no longer a great power. Anglo-French relations also deteriorated as a consequence of the Suez Crisis. The French were furious about Britain's abrupt military withdrawal from the Suez operation. The West German Chancellor, Conrad Adenauer, said to the French Prime Minister Guy Mollet at this time, Europe will be your revenge, which I think is a really good quote. Also, around this time, British economic weakness was becoming more and more apparent. We had a problem with rising labour costs, and also, in 1958, the German economy grew bigger than the British. German exports now exceeded British exports. Now, in 1960, Britain engaged in the experiment. This is when the uh, European Free Trade Association was set up, EFTA, 
and this involved the UK, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Austria, and Switzerland, and Portugal. But it wasn't a great success, because it was really at arm's length from the EEC. And now we enter the Macmillan era, Harold Macmillan, Prime Minister, 1957 to 63. And Macmillan, well, he liked, he liked Churchill's vision of Europe, that kind of grand vision that I was talking about earlier. But like many British politicians, he was also ambivalent. He worried about losing the ties with the Commonwealth, and he was also worried about British agriculture, should we sign up to the Treaty of Rome. Macmillan tried to cling to the free trade area idea, and I think it's also true that he was anxious about Britain's changing role, and often, apparently, very gloomy about it. Things start to change in 1960. In July 1960, Macmillan appointed Edward Heath as Lord Privy Seal inside the Foreign Office, and Edward Heath had special responsibilities for the relationship with the European community. Agonised arguments continue within the government. Key civil servants start to speak up a bit and point out the realities of Britain's position to the politicians. And in July 1961, the Cabinet decide to see whether satisfactory terms for joining could be negotiated. But I mean, you know, it's still not a fully-fledged pledge to apply. You can see it's a bit cautious. In the period 61 to 63, Edward Heath led the detailed negotiations and these all revolved around issues around tariff quotas and tariff barriers and farming and, of course, that thorny subject which kept cropping up time and time again of Commonwealth imports, New Zealand butter. However, despite all these difficulties, as time went into January 1963, a deal seemed to be in sight, but then... Non, non, non. <laughs> Most emphatically from General de Gaulle in his notorious press conference on the 14th of January 1963 where he effectively deployed his veto against the British application. It caused great shock. Now, why did de Gaulle do it? Actually, that's a, a title of a whole detailed memo in one of the files. Well... There's several reasons he wanted France to dominate the European community, and I think it is true that he did fear a challenge from Britain on that score. There's a famous remark attributed to him. He apparently said, there cannot be two cocks on the dunghill. <laughs> it's a great quote. And I think also another factor with all of this was Macmillan's bad timing, because around December 62, there was the Rambouillet summit, and at that summit, at that summit, Macmillan told de Gaulle that he was about to attend a summit meeting with President Kennedy, at which he hoped to negotiate the supply of the Polaris nuclear missile system, which would be delivered by submarines in the future. 
And from de Gaulle's point of view, this proved that Britain was in hock to the US. De Gaulle wanted Europe to pull away from what he saw as American domination, symbolised by NATO. So de Gaulle painted Britain as a US Trojan horse, effectively. Now, there are some most interesting documents that we have concerning the reaction to de Gaulle's veto, and this is one of them. These are some notes written by a Foreign Office official following the veto, and it reads, We have no quarrel with, and indeed must admire, General de Gaulle's work to restore French respect. Ditto for the French effort for a Franco-German rapprochement. We do have a profound difference with General de Gaulle over his policy towards Europe and the Western Alliance. In this connection, his concept of French nationalism evidently moves from healthy self-respect to belief in the mission of France to lead Europe. In maintaining our persistent opposition to these aspects of Gaullism, we must be careful not to inflame French pride by criticising the French as such. On the contrary. So these comments are all very measured and balanced in the finest diplomatic tradition. But this whole business was a disaster for Macmillan. Apparently, Macmillan was reduced to tears at one meeting with de Gaulle by de Gaulle's sheer stubbornness. De Gaulle said, This poor man, to whom I had nothing to give, seemed so sad, so beaten, that I wanted to put my hand on his shoulder and say to him, as in the Edith Piaf song, Ne pleurez pas, my lord. <laughs> I think it's also true that Macmillan didn't really give a strong lead on the EC issue. It's true that he was still pulled in the direction of the Commonwealth. And also, he had no plan B. You know, he wasn't anticipating this refusal by de Gaulle. And apparently, he plunged into depression soon after this episode. 63 was not a very good year for him. But we also, it's worth just spending a moment thinking about Hugh Gateskill's line as well, because Hugh Gateskill, leader of the opposition from 55 to 63, he didn't really take a consistent line on Europe, but he finally revealed himself as a Eurosceptic, to use the modern term, in his speech to the Labour Party conference at Brighton on the 3rd of October 1962, when, referring to British membership of the common market, he said... It does mean, if this is the idea, the end of Britain as an independent European state. It means the end of a thousand years of history. It was heady stuff. Things move on, and we get to the period 1964 to 66. Now, in this sort of period, there's a new breed of civil servant, of official, in the Foreign Office. There's a whole group of civil servants in the Foreign Office that sort of stake their careers to Britain joining the European community. Um, and they are very influential. In October 64, Labour won the general election, and Howard Wilson came to the Premiership very much with an anti-European sort of record, anti-European credentials. I think it's also true that in this period, there's a lot of emphasis on 
national planning for Britain, national planning, not much interest in the European collective alternative. But things start to change. There's various pressures and changes around this time. Chiefly, there's a whole series of economic crises from July 1966 onwards. And also, Britain starts to scale down its global commitments. In July 67, a defence white paper announced the end of Britain's presence east of Suez by the early 70s. British troops would be withdrawn in 1971 from the major military bases in Southeast Asia, primarily in Malaysia, Singapore and Aden. And this caused a great deal of shock in the Commonwealth. So those ties are beginning to loosen a bit. George Brown becomes Foreign Secretary and Wilson's approach can be summed up as very much softly, softly. He sort of nudges towards a new attempt at entry into the EEC. There's a lot of activity in 1967 because particularly from January to March, Wilson and Brown tour the EEC capitals, courting opinion. And on the 2nd of May, there's the announcement of the second try, the second application to join. However, in the course of that year, General de Gaulle makes noises again. Britain's economy is too weak for you to join. And, unfortunately, on November the 18th, the pound is devalued, and following on from that, on November the 27th, it's not, again, from de Gaulle. Now, this document is a Foreign Office statement from 19th of December 1967, immediately following this second veto, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's a matter of grave concern that the government of France has been unable to accept the unanimous view of its partners that negotiations for Britain's accession to the European communities should start at once. This can only delay the inevitable progress towards a united Europe, including Britain, which is in the interest of Europe as a whole. There is no question of withdrawing Britain's application. Her Majesty's government believe that, given the support of the five governments and the overwhelming majority of opinion throughout Western Europe, European unity is bound to be achieved. Her Majesty's Government will be consulting about the implications of the present situation with other European governments who share Britain's views on the future of Europe. And that seems to me to be a very strongly worded and unflinching statement. I thought you might be quite amused by this memo, which I found in one of the files, it's a memo from one of Harold Wilson's advisers to him. Prime Minister, if you wanted a text for the Common Market Times, one possibility might be the following lines from an old Confederate song. I can't take up my musket to fight them now no more, but I ain't gonna love them, and that's certain sure. <laughs> so it shows that, you know, even political advisers, they do have a sense of humour. But now we move to 1970 and on the 18th of June the Conservatives led by Edward Heath come to power and the government immediately 
pursues the application to join the EEC. But it's a bumpy old ride from 1970 to 72. The negotiations, which July 70 to January 72, are complicated and torturous. Heath's approach could be summed up as gain entry and then sort out any difficulties later. Heath and Pompidou's talks in May 71 paved the way for an agreement, but then the package had to get through the British Parliament. And that wasn't necessarily a straightforward matter. Enoch Powell rallied opposition, quite a sizable amount of opposition, within the Conservatives. But on the 28th of October 1971, Parliament voted in favour of British entry into the EEC on the terms that Heath had negotiated, and 69 Labour MPs broke ranks to support Heath. Really quite a very significant rebellion. And immediately following that, Edward Heath received this telegram from President Nixon. And just to read this, it says, Dear Mr Prime Minister, you are to be congratulated on the decisive parliamentary support that you have won for Britain's entry into the European community. It is a testimony to your personal leadership and the wisdom of your policy. With warm personal regards, sincerely, Richard Nixon. I'm sure he was pleased to receive that. So, on the 22nd of January 1972, Britain signed the Treaty of Accession, and on the 1st of January 73, Britain entered the EEC, or the Common Market. Ireland and Denmark also joined at that time, and so this brought up the number of member states to nine. Now let's just reflect for a few moments on Edward Heath and his role in this. Edward Heath, in terms of his background, you know, he had travelled a good deal on the European continent as a young man, and he'd actually witnessed the Nazi regime at first hand in the 1930s. If you look at his autobiography, The Course of My Life, there are some photographs that he took at some of the Nuremberg rallies, and you see Hitler being driven around and so forth. Heath was a committed anti-appeaser and he served in the Royal Artillery during the Second World War and he witnessed Europe's devastation. I believe he was at, he witnessed the Nuremberg trials and his view was very much never again all this devastation in Europe. He developed the strong conviction that Britain's interests lie in Europe. Now I now want to just try and tackle this rather thorny issue of national sovereignty and the issue of the EEC as opposed to the EU. A common statement you often hear from people is, I voted for Britain to join the EEC in 1975, not a European Union. The European Union, incidentally, was formally established by the Maastricht Treaty of 1993. I guess what we're talking about here is whether the true nature and direction of the European project was explained to the British people and what the documents reveal about this. Now, way back in November 1960, Macmillan asked Heath to seek legal opinion about the constitutional implications of signing up to the Treaty of Rome from Viscount Kilmuir, who was the Lord Chancellor 
at the time. And Lord Kilmuir wrote to Heath and to, and, to paraphrase him, he said that signing the Treaty of Rome will mean a loss of national sovereignty and it would be better to debate this openly now rather than later or there will be a great deal of furore further down the line. It seems to me this was very prophetic. In July 1971, the government's white paper said, there is no question of any erosion of essential national sovereignty. What is proposed is a sharing and an enlargement of individual national sovereignties in the general interest. But the thing is, there, there is perhaps a bit of vagueness here. What does essential national sovereignty mean? Now, Heath later explained that what he was referring to was Britain's capacity for self-government and its control of its armed forces. But I'm not sure that the precise meaning was spelt out at the time. There was a lack of clarity about some of these statements. And I think it's also true that there was general emphasis on economic arguments rather than political vision. This was seen very much as something for the future, something to be worked out in the future. Politicians were very, very keen to give a lot of reassurance. But Lord Kilmuir's point was, you know, he was referring to the fact that British Parliament would lose some of its functions and that the British courts would also lose some of their independence because of the European Court of Justice. But there was silence about those issues for a long time in the public domain. But quite a bit was known in, in, in a government. Now, this is an extract from a draft brief for ministers in a Treasury file which dates from 1970, commenting on the Werner Report, which was a plan for a European Economic and Monetary Union. It reads, It should be noted at the outset that the plan for Economic and Monetary Union, EMU, has revolutionary long-term implications, both economic and political. It envisages... In short, the creation of a European federal state with a single currency, all the basic instruments of national economic management, fiscal, monetary, incomes and regional policies, would ultimately be handed over to the central federal authorities. The Werner Report suggests that this radical transformation of the present communities should be accomplished within a decade. Now, the Werner Report was never implemented, but the single currency is obviously something that did come about. And I think it's just fair comment to say that these sort of projections were not placed in the public domain back in 1970. I've mentioned him before, Hugo Young. He makes many telling points in his book about Britain and Europe called This Blessed Plot. And it's Young who points out that, for the general public, economic issues were far more important than questions of sovereignty in the 1970s. And he does point to opinion poll evidence at the time to back up what he's saying on that. I think it's also fair comment that Heath was an awkward communicator in public. And I think he found it hard to sell Europe in a persuasive manner. But Heath, and it may surprise a number of people to hear this, but Heath did take a very assertive approach to European relations once he was at the top table in Europe. And this memo is quite reflective of that. This is a memo that Heath wrote to Robert Armstrong, I believe he was his private secretary at the time, 
And just to read this, I have often expatiated on the difficulties which, which arise in the European community affairs from the we and they attitude. We certainly still have a long way to go to get over this in Britain. However, on reading, this tele on, on reading the telegrams, I realise that the community, and in particular the Commission, suffer from exactly the same problem, and in some ways seem to realise it even less than we do that it exists. They are constantly barging ahead with regulations drawn up to suit themselves, and then coming along more or less with a take-it-or-leave-it take it attitude to present them to us. I really think we must muscle in on this machine now in a big way without wasting any more time. Presumably this is best done through Michael Palliser in Brussels. I think we might make this point to him and ask him how he sees us best dealing with it. There is certainly no time to be lost. And his initials there, DH. And another example of Heath's approach, in, in the early 1970s, the EEC had to make a decision about where to place a central bank. A central bank was just beginning to, to form. And all the other European leaders agreed that the bank should be in Luxembourg. But Heath wanted it to be in Brussels, and he argued that was the only solution. And he took a very sort of dogged line about it. And it has been said that Heath had a veto mentality in the way that he conducted business in Europe. But what of the Labour Party at this time? Well, the Labour Party was in opposition from 70 to 73, and it was badly split. Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan both made speeches critical of the EEC, and Jim Callaghan took a particular line he was Foreign Secretary at this time, or, or, or I should say Shadow Foreign Secretary, and his line was that entry was unacceptable on the terms that Heath has negotiated, and Wilson started taking up that line too. As early as November 1970, Tony Benn suggested a referendum on the whole issue. He said, let the people decide. Wilson originally says no several times, but under pressure, later, comes round to the idea. In March 74, Howard Wilson was back at number 10 as Prime Minister of a minority Labour government. The Labour manifesto had included a promise to renegotiate the terms of entry into the EEC. The renegotiation process got underway after the second general election that same year in October, which gave the Labour government a majority, albeit of three. Jim Callaghan was Foreign Secretary at this time, and so he headed the lengthy process of renegotiation, flying back and forth to Brussels. In a nutshell, it was all about getting some money back from the EEC. The negotiations concluded in March 75 at a community summit in Dublin at which a formula was accepted which did not actually reduce Britain's contribution to the EEC budget, but it held out the prospect of rebates for Britain in the future. Historical commentators tend to see this renegotiation business as a bit of a sham, that it was all about appearing to do something for Britain's national interests. Anyway, 
the meeting also agreed beneficial terms of trade for the New Zealand dairy products for the next five years. So obviously New Zealand was pleased. As we've seen, the Labour Party was badly divided over Europe and some ministers such as Tony Benn, Peter Shaw and Barbara Castle wanted Britain to withdraw from the EEC. Others, led by Roy Jenkins, were determined pro-Europeans. After winning the backing of Helmut Schmidt, the West German Chancellor, to make the renegotiations succeed, Wilson decided on his strategy. In the words of an anonymous government official who spoke to Hugo Young, he said he would get the cabinet to agree to have a referendum, to agree that it was government policy to stay in, but that Ben and Shaw and Castle would be free, exceptionally, to argue that we should come out. It amounted to a skillful piece of tactical manoeuvring. There were apparently terrible rows in cabinet at this time, but somehow, drawing on all his managerial skills, Wilson achieved a cabinet majority for a positive recommendation of the new terms. A couple of um, significant aspects about the referendum which was held in June 75. It was the first time that a national referendum had been held in the United Kingdom and it remains the only time of a national referendum has been held. And also Wilson suspended the tradition, as I've said, of collective responsibility in the cabinet, that members of the cabinet must publicly support all government decisions made in cabinet even if they disagree privately. The campaign cut across the usual party lines, so we see Ted Heath sharing a platform with Roy Jenkins, both advocating a yes vote. During the campaign, the government issued this booklet to every household in Britain. It put the government's case for staying in the European community and its view of the negative consequences if Britain did vote no. So, there was actually a great deal of wrangling before they agreed on the exact question to be put. The question was, do you think that the United Kingdom should stay in the European community, the common market? And the result, 5th of June 1975, just over 67% of voters said yes, voted yes. What factors explain the yes result? Well, the British economy was certainly in dire straits in 1975. It's in either 75 or 76 that inflation peaked at 26%. And in that sort of situation, people were averse to taking risks. So they voted for the status quo. It's also true that at the time, the cost of living was more important to people than issues of national sovereignty. These issues of national sovereignty were debated a bit during this campaign, but it didn't really set the campaign alight. So, the aftermath of the referendum. Well, the dust settled for a time on the whole European issue. There were no new initiatives from the British government for a while on Europe. And the whole kind of drive towards European integration stagnated because, you see, economic recession was a problem for the whole of Europe, really, following the oil crisis of 1973. So grand schemes of further union were off the agenda for a while. It's probably true to say that across Europe, across Europe more people engaged 
with the spirit of the European, sorry, the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> but actually perhaps any federalist project in Europe, even though, you know, even though the Eurovision Song Contest tends to show that countries will act in their own interest or perhaps a regional interest increasingly. Now here we have one of Britain's most successful forays into Europe, the Brotherhood of Man, <laughs> who won Eurovision for Britain in 1976 with the charming ditty, Save All Your Kisses For Me. Anyway, back to more serious matters. So, trying to draw some conclusions from all of this, we've seen how British political leaders found it hard to adjust to the realities of Britain's position in the post-war year, post-war years. Britain was no longer a great power. It had been overtaken economically by others and the empire was being dismantled. And I referred earlier to Churchill's free circles, Britain standing at the centre of three overlapping spheres of influence, the Atlantic relationship, the British Empire and the Commonwealth, and Europe. And this was certainly part of the consensus among Britain's political class for a long time. But it also led to indecision about Britain's strategy and best direction. As I've said earlier, there were a number of recurring themes coming through all of this. The quote from Churchill from 1930, we are with Europe, but not of it. And an example of this is the European army. Let the European continent get on with it, we'll have no part in it. We've also seen the suspicion of federalism all the way down the line, but also a lack of clarity about the issues surrounding the European project. They were not really put into stark relief. There was a fear of losing the ties with the Commonwealth, and it could be argued that in some ways that fear went rather out of proportion. We've also seen how the public records can be very illuminating about all these aspects. To sum up, in a nutshell, once British economic weakness became clear, European cooperation looked a lot more attractive. And Britain joins the EEC, and of course the drive and determination of Edward Heath was also a very important factor. But it's an unfinished story. And in the words of Sean Greenwood, the community to which Britain had now, at last, seemed to commit themselves was an evolving organism rather than a static, fixed creation. And so, the unfinished business continued. It's Margaret Thatcher, seen here campaigning for a yes vote in the 75 referendum campaign, in the most splendid jersey, was to take up the unfinished business of Europe in the 1980s, and this was seen in her battles over budgetary reform and indeed the reaction towards a renewed drive towards integration among European leaders. But that, as they say, is another story. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 23rd of October 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.